The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. That's great. <clears throat> Let, let's get started here. Uh, when I was first contacted about speaking in chapel, I was a little surprised. Uh, and my first response back uh, via email was to confirm that this was a real invitation. I thought maybe they got another alumnus uh, who was L.T. Jackson mixed up with, with me, someone who had done something prominent. Uh, and so I was leery of saying yes and then having to be told, oh, we're sorry. We didn't mean you. Uh, I haven't written a book. I don't pastor a large church. Uh, in, in fact, I've read the average size church in the United States right now is about 60 people. And we would have that if everybody in the church showed up on the same Sunday. So I got confirmation, yes, this is a real invitation. Uh, and so after receiving that assurance that it was not a mistake, I accepted the invitation gladly um, and enthusiastically. And then I had to wrestle with why my first thought was that it must be some mistake. The longer that I pastor and, and operate in that world, the Christian uh, uh, leadership world, the more I see how the world's way of valuing things has creeped into the church. We measure success in ministry in ways that are foreign, I think, to the scriptures, but uh, are familiar in corporate boardrooms, and I, I think that's a problem. But that's not a, new, that's not a new phenomenon. The disciples, I think, struggled with this as well, because they were products of their world and their culture. And I think the church will be much healthier if we can see this tendency that we have on our part, in our hearts and in our minds, and, and reject it. And so the text that was read, I think, should help us in that task. Some context to this particular text that was read, Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. In Luke's gospel, this is a, a transition point between Jesus' ministry in Galilee and his movement toward Jerusalem. The gospels tell us he sets his face toward Jerusalem. It's a transition from a more public ministry where the disciples are with him to focusing on preparing the disciples. So the focus seems to shift a little bit on, on them in particular and, and the work that Jesus wants to do through them. It's where they first get sent out to do the ministry and they come back kind of excited like, wow, it really happened, it really worked. This is where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, which seems to trigger the transition toward Jerusalem to prompt Jesus to be more explicit in his declarations that he's going to Jerusalem so that he can suffer and die. This section is as much about uh, the disciples and discipleship as it is about Jesus and Christology. And it introduces, in earnest, I think, the, the countercultural approach to ministry that Jesus wants his disciples to embrace. And so we have some conflicts here. Uh, and, you know, pre-resurrection, pre the disciples kind of trip through their work with 
Jesus, they stumble through it, they struggle, they don't understand, they don't get it. After the resurrection, I think a big light bulb kind of goes off. So this is pre-resurrection. They're still trying to figure things out. They're operating with the, the, the categories that they have from their world. And so we have this sort of general conflict between Jesus and his disciples. It's the, the way of Jesus versus the way that they know, the way of their world. And over and over again in this section, the disciples reflect an understanding of their ministry that is based on the value system from their world rather than the one that Jesus is trying to introduce to them, the one that sort of represents the values of the kingdom. And so Jesus is sort of constantly correcting them and rebuking them in some instances because they're not picking up what he's putting down. More specifically, we have this conflict centered around, uh, first, this question, who, who is the greatest? Now, they don't ask Jesus, the disciples, they don't ask him specifically to rank them. Right? That would be really, really pretentious. They just have that conversation amongst themselves, and he knows it. Who is the greatest? Well, this is the world's value system at work. Proximity to power does funny things to people. And certainly Jesus has a power at this point in his life, a, a power and an influence. I mean, wherever he goes, people are flocking to him because of the things he's doing and the things that he's teaching, and they want more of that. And so those who are close to him kind of, they, 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 they get some of that uh, that desire for power, that desire for prestige and influence, and it starts to go to their head because they're people like us. James Edwards puts it this way in his commentary, being in Jesus' inner circle had at least some deleterious effect on the disciples as inner circles often do. They found themselves in a place of prominence because they were attached to the right person, the rising star of Jesus. And so they naturally began to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And so Jesus combats this worldly way of thinking by flipping it on its head. He does a lot of that in the Gospels, flips things upside down. And he says, the one who is least or who serves the least is greatest in my kingdom. The one who serves and receives those who are at the bottom, who are forgotten by their culture, who contribute nothing to one's social status. In fact, they would hinder your social status if, if it was clear you were attached to them. They would hinder your upward trajectory. Serving those people is what makes someone great in the kingdom of God. So the world says, climb to the top over a pile of people to achieve greatness and status and prestige and influence. And Jesus says, burrow to the bottom of the pile of people 
and lift up those who are there to achieve greatness in the kingdom of God. So that's, that's one specific example of this larger conflict that Jesus is having with his disciples. The second one comes in, in John's um, interaction. He's sort of, you can almost sense there's an enthusiasm, like, hey, I did something good here, Lord. Right? When he, when he comes to Jesus and he, and, he, and he tells him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and, and we tried to stop him. Because he, he does not follow with us. He's, he's bragging of, about stopping someone who was doing the ministry that Jesus had sort of set them to do, his disciples. Because they didn't follow with us, in, in John's words. Presumably meaning they didn't operate in the same inner circle as us. John has done something now with his uh, proximity to power that is also very worldly. He's, he's made himself a gatekeeper of this exclusive community. And, and gatekeepers in the Christian world, and there are many who presume to fill this role, right? Just go on Christian Twitter, or don't go on Christian Twitter. Maybe it would be better uh, uh, instruction. That's, I don't do Facebook or whatever. I don't know what people of your generation do. Instagram is out, right? Like, people don't do that much anymore? Still some? Oh, okay. All right. But you guys aren't like TikTok, right? Or, or are you? No? Oh, some of you. Okay. All right. Well, any social media, you won't have to look hard to find Christian gatekeepers who are setting the boundaries and, and delineating who is outside of the tight inner circle and who is in. And that can be determined by doctrine or theology, by practice, by denominational affiliation, and on and on and on. John is basing his gatekeeping on proximity to Jesus. Some disciples outside of our tight circle are doing what you want us to do, and they're doing it better than us, because just a couple paragraphs before, the disciples, these disciples could not cast out a, a demon from a boy, and they're doing it better than us, but they're not one of us, so I told them to knock it off. See, John's basis is not ministry fruitfulness or obedience to Jesus, but that John didn't know him. That was pretty much it. The disciples who argued about who was greatest and who should sit at Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom cannot abide the idea that Jesus might be working in and through other people who are outside of their control and their authority. They would rather stop effective ministry than to accept that they are not as special or important as they think they are. And, and, and I want to be clear here. I don't, I don't want to... These, are, these individuals are the foundation upon which the church was built. I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm dragging them or I'm making fun of them. The point is rather, this is us. This is the way we are in our hearts and in our minds 
when we allow the world's way of valuing things to influence us, to, to influence the way that we think and behave. So I'm not pointing at them saying, oh, look how bad they were. I'm glad we're not like that. I'm saying, look, even they struggled with the same things we struggle with. So Jesus rebukes John by telling him that those disciples, presumably, who are not working against you are working for you. John needs to learn that Jesus is not limited to working through just his little group, but that he is, that Christ is moving through other people in ways that John will never know. And what does that require? Well, this is kind of the big point I want us to consider this morning. This requires humility. Scripture is a gift to us because God uses it to open us up, to reveal to us ourselves, our thoughts, our desires, our values, and whether or not they reflect God's, whether or not they line up with the the desires and the values of the kingdom. If we allow this scripture to do that work, I think we, the church in this time and place, will see that we still think like the world too often. So what needs to change? We must accept that humility is a requirement for us, for disciples of Jesus, to pursue that, to pursue life and ministry with humility and to expect it, especially from our leaders who too often don't show the level of humility that they should. These are everyday battles, right? Everyday battles of the flesh. The world says pursue power and use that power to advantage yourself or your group. And that happens in the church as well, unfortunately, and people suffer as a result of that. The world says to not waste time on people who cannot help you grow your influence. The world says to be skeptical of those outside of your group. Don't give them the benefit of the doubt. See them as your opponents if they don't fall in line with you. But Jesus says, those who serve the least are great. Jesus says, I can work through people outside of your circles. Jesus says, my power is made great in your weakness. Jesus says, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Humility is hard. We are, I'm not, 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 not talking like bashfulness, shyness, that comes naturally to a lot of us, but humility Genuine humility is hard. We are not wired that way. 
or, or maybe we are, but there's, there's a defect in our wiring, right? The sin. Humility requires giving up control, giving up control of other people, not just ourselves, but other people, which is hard. It requires trusting that God is going to care for us and provide for us so we don't have to take matters into our own hands. The last place we should find self-serving people is in the church. Yet here we are, us self-serving people. The way of Christ is hard because it turns what we know upside down, what comes easy upside down. It requires us to pursue things like the interests of other people, even people who socially might be beneath us. But Jesus knows this is a struggle because he has lived it as well. As he took on our flesh, he became one of us. He dealt with the weaknesses that we deal with in the flesh. So he understands. He's also given us his spirit that's able to produce in us fruit that includes humility. So we read these texts, we read these stories about these genuinely great people. I don't want to make it like the disciples were terrible. Genuinely great people who did tremendous things for the kingdom in their life. But they had hard lessons that they had to learn just like us. And we can, we can learn with them as we read them in these texts. And so as we do... May the way of Jesus, that way as a, of, of the one like a lamb who was slain, be, be your way. That's not the world's way, for sure, but may it be your way. May it guide your life and ministry all your days, and may you find comfort in a God who prizes faithfulness over success and may it be on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a gift to us for, for so many reasons, uh, primarily because of what it reveals to us about you. But it's also a gift to us because of what it reveals to us about us, how it opens us up how it helps us to see those areas where we are following the world, not your spirit. I pray that you would help us to daily recognize that. Help us to understand what is important, truly important, what you value, what those things that are, are celebrated in your kingdom, and to embrace those, and to reject those things that are celebrated in the kingdom of the world, but do not reflect your desires for us. May our lives reflect you as we live them. May you be raising up a generation of Christians who embrace humility, who are okay with, with being unrecognized and unnoticed, 
because they know that faithfulness is what really matters to you. Lord, bless these, these uh, folks as they go from here to their classes, watch over them, and continue to work in them as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.